It was the first time that I was asked to do a eulogy um, at a funeral as a pastor. It was the very first time I got asked that. I've done some weddings before, and I felt confident about that. But when asked to do a, a funeral as a young pastor, like, I felt the weight of it. Um, and on, all, honestly, like, I was nervous. And so I, I started beginning to prepare. I, like, I called some older pastor friends of mine, and they gave me some advice. They gave me some of their notes, which was really helpful. Um, and I prepared to do a funeral. Um, one of the things in preparing is we kind of actually met with the family of the deceased, and we we're sitting there talking through just his life and, um, and what he w- was about, and we're just kind of downloading things, getting to like process their grief with them. And at the end of that meeting, uh, the son of the deceased pulls me aside, and he goes, Brandon, you need to know that this is a military funeral, so you're going to need to keep it quick. I think he thought that I'd done this before, right? <laughs> so he's like, he's like, hey, keep it quick. And I was like, awesome. I can do that. Um, I was relieved. And so I wrote the eulogy. I spent time with it. And I'm like, just sitting there processing, going like, how can I, I want to share the hope that I have in Jesus for this family. Um, And so we drove out, it's a military funeral. And so we drive out to um, the cemetery, Bakersfield National Cemetery, out as you're going up to Tehachapi. Have you been there before? It's, It's gorgeous. It's actually this really beautiful spot. And so I'm out there, and right before uh, the the ceremony, right before the funeral, uh, we get pulled into an office, and the officer that is in charge of the National Cemetery kind of like goes through the order, making sure everything's in place. And as you can imagine, the officer in charge of this place, he's very consoling, he's very um, kind and compassionate, but he also has that like military no-nonsense about him, right? Very reverent, very military no-nonsense. And he kind of goes through the order. And as we're going out to do uh, the funeral, he pulls me aside and he goes, Pastor, you have five minutes and not one minute more. <laughs> and, and then he looks at me like dead in the eyes and he's like, I will cut you off. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like, <laughs> that's no problem. Problem is I had, ten, I had like 10 minutes prepared. I had like, I had a thing. I was ready for it. And they wanted me to sing a song. And now I'm like scared to death because... I've got five minutes and this guy is eyeballing me the entire time like with his watch and he's got it. So I say that because in that situation, in preparing, I had like three minutes in a sense to like share some hope or like to talk about this guy's following Jesus. And the thing is like, what do I share now? What, what do I say? If I had one thing to share, if I had one thing to like press into that moment, what is it that I would share? Typically, if you've been to a Christian funeral before, and, you, and you've heard it's like what, um, usually there's a language that comes with it. And usually the language is like, it's, it's part of the truth, but it's not the whole story. It's part of what it is and not the whole story. And if you would just allow me, let, let me go into our, um, let me get to my remote real fast so we can get there. control the slides. All right, thank you for your patience. Typically, if you've been to a Christian funeral before, you've maybe heard something along the lines of a quote that's like this. This is not what I said at the funeral, by the way. This is just a like something like this. It says this, all of us are sojourners here. We're strangers and we're exiles. The soul is an exile and a wanderer, which has left heaven for earth and life on earth as on an island buffeted by the seas. The soul is what this person's talking about, imprisoned within the body like an oyster in the shell. And at death sometimes like, oh, the soul is free. Have you heard something like this before? 
Our soul has left heaven for earth. It's imprisoned within the body like an oyster shell, and one day it will be free from the restraints of the body. And that may sound maybe something you would hear at a funeral. It might sound beautiful, but is it, is it biblical? Is it the like what we look forward to from the scriptures is just at death, our soul is disembodied to spend eternity in heaven? This quote is actually from somebody named Plutarch, who is a Greek Platonic philosopher. He was um, a priest at the temple of Apollo during the time that the apostles are writing their gospel narratives. And he says this, this idea sounds more Greek than biblical. This idea is more Plato than Jesus. It's more Greek than Hebrew. It's more even American than how a Jewish Israelite person would think. God's redemptive project is not just to get the soul out of the body, but to redeem all of creation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. As I was giving the eulogy at this funeral, um, I don't think I landed where I'm going to like talk today. I didn't butcher it. But I'd, I'd like, oh, if I can just do it one more time, because I think what I would have shared is the hope of resurrection. I would have shared the hope of resurrection that we will all take a part in. And that's the passage we're going to look today as Jesus shows up in the midst of the disciples and they're freaking out about it. What does this mean? And here's my main point for today. Um, I'll give it to you now and we'll hit it at the end. What God did for Jesus on Easter day, he will do for all of his people. At the end, raising them to new bodily life, to share in the life of the new world. This is why Easter is worth celebrating. We are teaching through Luke 24 today, and then we'll go into the next two chapters in Acts. During this season, it's called Eastertide. Happy Eastertide. Eastertide is a season of the church that kicks off on Easter Sunday, and it continues for 50 days to Pentecost Sunday, which is June 5th this year. And that's how long this series will go. And we are prone really quickly as a culture to move on to the next thing. Rich Vlota said it this way, um, our society has been conditioned to live in a perpetual state of inattention. Perpetual state of inattention. And this is why the season of Eastertide is important for us. Because often we just celebrate like one day and then we move on to the next. Some of you actually spent 40 days in Lent. And you spent 40 days like, like, like repenting and renewing. And even some of you are fasting from something. And then Easter comes, you're like, oh, we're done. Right? It's like all this like work in a sense. And they're like, oh, we're done. But if you think about it, Easter tide is 50 days. It's 10 days longer than the Lenten fast, which means like this is something to celebrate. We are saying the kingdom of God has come among us, and we celebrate the risen Christ and the new life that he starts. We participate in that. So happy Easter tide, church. Happy Easter. We still get to say it for 50 days, okay? Happy Easter. So let's dive into our passage. If you have your Bibles, Luke 24. Um, I'll have it on the screen as well, but love for you if you have your own. Uh, we'll start off with just the first verse, and how we'll do it is I'll just walk through each verse. The very first verse says this, while they were still talking about this, what are they talking about? They're still talking about this, Luke 24, 36. I see some people thumbing through. While they were still talking about this, the scripture says, a quick reminder, last week Nick talked on the story before this passage where the risen Jesus reveals himself to two disciples walking on the road away from Jerusalem, the road of Emmaus. Verse 33, I'll just show that up here so that we can see the story we're stepping into. 
33 through 35 says, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. That's the disciples that encountered Jesus. There they found the 11, the, the apostles that are left, and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. So grab the scene really quick. You have two disciples coming back. You have the 11 in the upper room. I want you to put yourself in that for a second. The Gospel of John says that the door was locked. And a few days ago, you have these disciples. They're part of this movement. They've invested into it. And it comes to just this disappointing like end, this disappointing halt. You were filled as a disciple of Jesus. Now, you followed him for three years. Can you imagine just for a second being filled with grief? being filled with disbelief, maybe even anger, like a deep disillusionment. Jesus, who you saw heal, teach, challenge the religious elite, you saw like potential that this is the Messiah, the hero you've been waiting for, the hope of Israel. That hope is now dead. That hope is dead. Your only hope is dead. And you actually, maybe you're in the spot, you fear that you will have the same fate as Jesus, that you will be handed over to the religious elite maybe even crucified. No wonder your door is locked, right? They are in the upper room and you have students of Jesus now coming in. You already have the women of your crew going like, we saw him, he's alive. And you have these two students that come and they say, we're alive. We saw him breaking bread. Like we encountered Jesus and then like he was gone. Can you imagine just for you, if you're in that moment, the cocktail of emotions that would be going through you? Like what is happening? Maybe some of you would just be trying to like convince your friends, like, no, I saw him. This, this is true. Maybe some of you play the skeptic more in your role, and you're like, no way, man. There's no way that that's true. That's not happening. Maybe some of you would be just in wonderment and like, just like, what is happening? What would you be like in this situation, in that upper room? How would you act? Our passage today says this. While they were still talking about this, it's in the midst of them talking about this, says this, that Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus himself stood among them and started speaking. You're in this argument. People are saying, like, hey, this is happening. No, it's not. Could it be? And Jesus goes, like, here I am. This incredible moment. Can you imagine the confusion? And what does Jesus say to them? Jesus says this, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus stands in their midst and says, peace be with you. Peace be with you is just a casual greeting in the first century used all the time. The phrase is shalom aleikum. And it's every day. It's a standard greeting. It's as standard as an Aussie saying, good day, mate. And I wish I could do the accent, but I can't do an Aussie accent. But it's, it's, it's like as standard as that. Or maybe like as standard as us in our culture. We don't even say hi anymore. We say what? What's up? I think we say, how are you doing, Right? which as an aside is a question we actually don't really want people to answer, right? Like, how you doing? No, please don't answer that really. Like, just say how you doing back. But it's as common as that. It's like Jesus standing in their midst, in the midst of that tension among them. And he says, how are you doing? Good day. Peace be with you. However, this common phrase is loaded with meaning. It's loaded with significance. Peace in the peace be with you is the Hebrew word shalom. The Hebrew word shalom. Everybody say shalom this morning. Just a shalom. Shalom aleichem is what he says. It's not peace, in, meaning the absence of conflict. 
Shalom is peace, meaning like the restorative of like fullness, wholeness. Shalom in every world, in every aspect of life, it's, it's, it's the sense of coming back together, of life as it should be. Shalom is what he says to them. The Gospels of Luke and John actually record Jesus saying this four times as he, in his resurrected state. So Jesus says this to them. In the next verse, it says this. How do they respond? So they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Yeah, they were. I'd be spooked. Would you? Like, be spooked. They're spooked. They thought they were seeing a ghost or some kind of spirit or a purely spiritual being. And Luke here has the disciples thinking that Jesus is a ghost. And in a few verses, Jesus is actually going to address this ghost theory. And he's going like, to show him his, his body and like, look, no, I have bones and I have flesh. But this is really important for us. And if you notice as we read this passage, Luke really hones in here on this ghost thing. He starts talking about it a lot. This is not a ghostly apparition. What Luke is saying here is this isn't a mirage. Luke is not saying this is like a hallucination after some ayahuasca psychedelic retreat or anything like that. Like he's saying, no, something, something extraordinary has just happened. A bodily resurrection. This is something entirely unexpected and different. The view of resurrection was rooted and held in many Jews at the time, though not all. Resurrection was a contentious debate in Jesus' day, and deep within the story of Israel and its scriptures, and during the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it became something that they really began to wrestle with. The Jews were agonizing over two constraints. One was this, the goodness of creation. That God has created, like he's created things good. It is good. And also the commitment of God to justice, on the other hand. And the Psalms and the prophets insist that God cares deeply about putting right what has gone wrong in the world. And they anticipated, they really anticipated the judgment of God. And when you hear judgment, I think sometimes we think of like the um, consequential notes of that word. But judgment, justice, God putting things right is something that the Jews looked forward to. It was a joyous celebrating moment that the good God would put everything right as it should be at last. Justice means making things right again at last, getting the original creation project back on track. And so this idea of resurrection shows up in the gospel accounts all the time. There was a project of the Pharisees, you guys heard of them before, who believed that resurrection in the age to come was for those who were faithful to Yahweh. The Pharisees knew that there would be an age to come where God would resurrect all people to their physical bodies, some to life, some to death. It was a creation out, not out of everything like the beginning, but a new creation out of the old. This is what the Pharisees believed. And you also have a group in the first century called the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, but believed in more of the traditional Jew, um, Jewish idea of Sheol or just the grave for those who had died. And between those two thoughts, there was much to argue about. And we see that in the scriptures, even just this little one from Luke 20. Luke 20 says this. We won't do the whole story, but just, the, just to get the picture of just the um, atmosphere that this is in. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, they come to Jesus with a question. And the question is like, do you get married in the resurrection? That was a question they, they gave to Jesus. But here you already see they're arguing with Jesus about the debate of resurrection. Or Martha at Lazarus' grave. 
Lazarus has died. Martha comes out to meet him. Martha says this to Jesus. Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Mary agrees with the Pharisees here. She doesn't agree with the Sadducees. And she answers theologically. Look at this. She says this. Martha answered, like, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. If you're reading the New Testament, you'll see it all the time. They're having this conversation about resurrection a lot. Martha believed in the resurrection like the Pharisees, but notice this. She heard Jesus' words about Lazarus rising again and said, yes, I know that, Jesus. I know he will rise again on the last day. And this is important to our passage, and here's what I want you to get. The Jewish context of resurrection did not have in its mind the resurrection of one person resurrecting before the ultimate resurrection. This was, this was a new thing. This was a shocking revelation. How does Jesus respond to Martha when she says, yes, I know he will rise again the last day. Jesus said to her what? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So back in the upper room, the disciples are shocked to see Jesus among them. This is a new thing. Of course, you're thinking this is a ghost because the resurrection is for all, not just one person. Let's keep going in verse 38. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate them in their presence. And I just want to sit this before we talk about resurrection at the end. Notice this. What does Jesus say to them? They are startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? I love that translation in the NIV. Why do doubts arise in your mind? How many of you, like, you've walked through, you've walked through the seasons of doubt? You've walked through the seasons of troubles? It does feel like that metaphor that Jesus says here. Sometimes it does feel like doubt almost rises in the mind, like a tide wave coming in where it almost pushes out anything else until it just overtakes. In the rising of doubt in the mind, Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at us today, and he invites us into something. He actually notices it, and he addresses it. Doubts and troubles, my friends, doubts and troubles are not foreign to the life of a disciple. They will not be foreign to you. They have not been foreign to me. Here they are with the disciples. Their doubt is rising in their mind. They are troubled. Jesus recognizes this. Doubt is not an enemy of our faith. Doubt can be a really great invitation, but it's a really crummy destination. It could be a really great invitation, but a really crummy destination. To use maybe a positive metaphor, it's like doubt can be like getting on the tram um, at the Disneyland parking lot and then never getting off it, right? And like you just pass Disneyland, you're like, nah, I'm, hey, I'm heading on the tram right now. 
But the whole point of that tram is actually an invitation into something greater, into Disneyland. And doubt in the life of these believers, the life here, is actually an invitation into something, not an invitation to stay in something. And Jesus invites them into that. And for, for just us this morning, this is a really quick thing. How does Jesus invite them? Notice these two things. Jesus invites them beyond their doubt and says this first, look at my hands and feet, it is myself. Jesus' first invitation is to look at what? What are on, what are on his hands and feet right now? They're scars, wounds. Jesus says, as doubt rises in your mind, troubles, where are we supposed to look as disciples? Look at my hands and feet. Look at my hands and feet, the way I've loved, the way I've given the way I've walked this before, my, my scars, my hands, the wounds of crucifixion. Second, this is what Jesus says. After you've done that, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I love that. Look at my hands and feet and come touch me and see. Come near, embrace me, the closest of Jesus in this moment. It reminds me of those videos, if you've seen them, of uh, people who have gone away, maybe soldiers who have gone away, um, deployed, and they come back to surprise their loved ones. Have you seen those videos? They're the best, right? They surprise them. They come back. The first thing the person sees when they see their loved one, they're just like, they see. But what comes next is just the explosion of joy as they, like, they have to embrace them, right? Jesus here in our time of doubt, in our time of rising doubt, in our time of troubles, invites us, one, to look at his story again. Look at what he's done. Look at how he's loved. And also come embrace me. It is the invitation for us today. In John's gospel, we're not going to hit that today, but another moment comes when the disciple Thomas, he, he's actually not in the upper room in John's gospel, and the disciples are like, Thomas, you won't believe we saw the risen Jesus. And, and Thomas goes like, no way, I don't believe it unless I would touch his hands and his feet. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? Which is a whole, like, he got stuck with that name. Like, for the rest of history, he's now Doubting Thomas. Like, congratulations, man. But in Doubting Thomas, it's the same thing. Again, put ourselves in his shoes. No Jew had in mind the concept of one person getting resurrected before the resurrection, the day of the Lord. And one of my favorite uh, paintings of this, it's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas by Italian artist Carvaggio. So this was painted in 1602. Just, just sit with it for a moment. It's one of my favorite pictures of this moment. <clears throat> in it, you have on top, you have Peter, and you have uh, the disciple John. And here is Thomas. And just like good Italian art, good art in this, in this moment, you have a lot of light and dark. The light is coming from the side of Christ. You notice that? Expelling the dark. You have Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's an odd picture, I know. But you have Jesus. Look at that. He's guiding Thomas's hands to touch his wounds, to believe. My favorite moment in this whole thing is this right here. You have Thomas's reaction to it. If you look at before, you have Peter and you have John's, their, their brows are like still looking, still wondering, but you have this image of Thomas like getting it and the light starts to invade his dark eyes. For those of you that are in that moment of doubt rising like a tide and mind in your heart, Jesus invites you into the same encounter. Come touch, like look at my hands and feet. Come embrace me. The invitation is to look at the crucified, resurrected Jesus' scars. Jesus, my friends, is the image of God. He is what God is like. 
He is not a God who is distant or immune from suffering. He's not immune from the suffering or pain, but knows it intimately. Let's finish our section and then a thought at the end. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everyone must be fulfilled that it is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. This encompasses all of the Old Testament, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they can understand the scriptures. I love that doubt was one time rising in their minds, and now Jesus opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Where there was once doubt, now there's understanding as Christ illuminates. Verse 46, he told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. We're going to really talk about that next week as, as Jesus ascends. But there's a lot we can unpack here, but just to end with this, what we started. <clears throat> what I want to end with is our time this morning is that moment in the story where we are drawn to the odd little piece where Jesus, now resurrected, stands in their midst. They're wondering if they've seen a ghost. And what is the thing, what is the act that Jesus does? to show that he is actually, like, he's here. He goes, I'm hungry. Do you have any fish? Right? And he's like, can you just, like, just imagine the disciples. They're like, jaws are dropped. And Jesus just, like, grabs some fish and just starts eating in front of them. Right? Like, it's an odd story. Why does Luke put it in there? It's really important for us. Um, if you are a uh, product of 90s culture, like myself, um, maybe you remember the movie, the 1995 classic, uh, about a friendly ghost named Casper. Um, don't watch it. It's not that great. But starring Christina Ritchie, there's this scene in Casper where uh, Casper's housemates, the, the like, ghostly trio, they come down for breakfast. Casper feeds them breakfast. They start eating the food. And it's this really weird scene. They just eat it, and it goes right through them and starts piling on the floor. And Christina Ritchie's just, like, grossed out by it. Um, Luke includes this detail, and it stands out, and it's there for a reason. Because Luke wants us to know that Jesus is eating just like a normal person would in his resurrected state. Jesus is not a ghost eating breakfast. Something else is happening here. And this is what's important for us. Jesus' bodily resurrection, church, is a preview of what is to come for those who have faith in Jesus resurrection. We actually participate in it. This is the hope that we have from Jesus's life. Often we just talk about the first stage, which is heaven, which is being with Christ, and we don't tell the rest of the story, which is resurrection. Jesus's bodily resurrection will one day be your bodily resurrection, not a different body. This one, but different. This one, but different. What does that mean? From Genesis 1 onward, humans are made to rule in God's creation. To rule means to steward and to enable God's creation, not to squash it or exploit it. And with Jesus, we realize that we, what we call heaven, God's space, and what we call earth, our space, are designed to work together, to overlap, to interlock. And we humans, as image bearers of God, stand in that gap. In Paul's letter to Galatians, Paul speaks of new creation. The new world has come about because God has rescued us from what the scriptures say, the present evil age, now. Paul picks up from his Jewish world the idea not only of heaven and earth overlapping, but of the present evil age which is going on, like the, the, what we experience now, sorrow, 
sickness and death and the age to come as promised. And we find ourselves in the in-between state. This is the kingdom of God. It is now and it's not yet. It is here right now and it's coming still. The age to come, resurrection, has broken into what the scriptures say, the present evil age. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it's one of his famous resurrection passages, says this. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits, the first one of those who have fallen asleep. For since death has come through man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. He wants us to see what's happening in this moment in the upper room is the first fruits of what is going to come. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of the Father after he has destroyed, destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Back to the moment um, where I am at my five-minute eulogy with my officer friend staring me down. I think what I did in that moment, if I'm honest, if I remember right, um, I think in that moment I talked like he's with Jesus. Like our, our, our friend who passed, he faithfully followed Jesus. And he is with him today. I told them about the, like, the hope of life after death, that Jesus was his savior. And that is true. However, again, it's only half of the story. It's only half of the hope that scriptures reveal. The New Testament isn't as interested in what happens to us immediately after we die. Where I think us in the West, we care a lot about that. But the scriptures actually, like, they paint a fuller picture. We know that the thief on the cross, Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room that he's going away to prepare a place for them, and he'll return to take them to himself. Paul, in his next letter, 2 Corinthians, says, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But the New Testament tells an entirely different story, not only life after death in heaven, but resurrection. We find that explicitly in the scriptures. Um, N.T. Wright, who wrote a book called um, Surprised by Hope, talks about this a lot. Like It's a great read if that's something you're interested in. But he dubs it this way, and I really like this. N.T. Wright calls what we're talking about today this, life after, life after death. Sit with it for a second. It's, it's a little clunky, but it's life after, life after death. That is the hope of Jesus' resurrection. It's not just life after death with Jesus in heaven but life after life after death, resurrected back on earth. But we actually follow in the model of what Jesus did, what's happening in this passage. What God did for Jesus on Easter day, he will do for all of his people at the end, raising them to new bodily life, to share in the life of the new world. The early Christian view is that we humans, you, are whole creatures, including body and soul. They are interconnected. They are a whole. And at death, we are in a sense removed from our bodies as they stay in the grave. But in a sense, we are naked now, awaiting to be fully clothed again in the resurrection. This is what Jesus shows us as he stands in an upper room and he grabs a plate of fish and he puts some salt and pepper on it and he takes a bite. He participates in eating in the resurrection. Our future hope is life after life after death. If we talk and hope only in heaven apart from earth, 
Like we're missing out on the fullness of the hope of Scripture's climactic moment of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of the body, participation in the new creation, the new heavens and earth is not a matter, it's a matter of being transformed in the present. As Jesus transforms us into being the people he wants us to be. This is what we celebrate in Eastertide. And my prayer for you is just to be thinking like this week, like what, if Christ's resurrection is a foretaste, it's a first fruit of what is to come. The invitation is for you to say yes to following Jesus. It's, it's the invitation of saying yes that Jesus is Savior and Lord. It's the process of baptism and following the way of Jesus so we participate now in the inbreaking kingdom of God. And the other piece is this. The kingdom of God has broken in. This story we read today, that resurrection, the age to come, has broken into this present evil age. And as resurrected people, we participate in that inbreaking kingdom. Your family you love today, it's a participation in the inbreaking kingdom of God. The work you do tomorrow, the job you say yes to tomorrow, part of that is the inbreaking kingdom of God. Where we participate in the justice of God, we participate in the beauty of God. And in that, we are foretasting what will come, resurrection. We're going to move to a time of taking the bread and cup. And this is actually a practice of that. Paul, in, in, in Corinthians, is the passage that we read as we take communion, he says, we do this in remembrance of the Lord. That he, we remember that he died, and we also remember that he will come again. That he will come again. We practice and we participate in communion.